Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, we had in Washington, D.C., Yesterday, you know, the whole discussion about GameStop, we had all kinds of different players in the market there. Uh, but it seems to be maybe more theater uh, than real substance. Let's get some expert uh, overview. We can do that today with former E-Trade CEO Carl Rossner. He's now CEO of Left Terrace Acquisition. Carl, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, what was your takeaway from the hearings yesterday? So, so I, think, I think you hit it. Thanks for having me on the show. And I, I think you hit it right on the right on the head, right? There was a lot of political theater. Uh, there was some, you know, sort of political one, one-upmanship and, you know, making sure that each of them had their, you know, three, four or five minutes of, of fame, as they call it. Um, but I do think a couple of points came out of it that were very helpful, right? One was around payment for order flow. Um, I think maybe retail investors and, and some of the more wider audience maybe can start to understand that payment for order flow does have a place when it comes for retail trading and that there are trade-offs to just, you know, a knee-jerk reaction of saying there is no, no more payment for order flow allowed. I think short selling, right, will come under pressure and there'll definitely be some reviews, I think, and additional rulemaking and, and lawmaking coming down the pipe. And then there will be a, a, a push over the next few years, because I think it will take that long, to move, you know, clearing and settlement to a, a T plus one type arrangement, you know, agreeing with some of the witnesses in terms of the the difficulty of moving the entire securities clearing to, you know, intraday. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, actually. Um, you know, a lot of the comments from senators made me wonder how much their staffs had actually prepared them for this. But um, I, I, it was worth it to hear Ken Griffin talk about, because I thought, why T plus two? We're not in the Stone Ages. Let's do it instantly. And actually, Ken Griffin explained that that would be really difficult and even dangerous for a lot of market participants. So um, I, I really learned something. What about the short selling pushback, Carl? Why um, wasn't there any? I mean, in an efficient market, you need people to um, go long and um, to to conti- to keep discipline in order. You need people to go short. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think the short sellers are going to come under pressure, right? If there's any area that, and you've seen it from some of the senators who have written letters and some of the Congress men and women who have you know, gotten involved, that they, they look at that as hedge funds gaming the market and they're going to vilify hedge funds. So I do think you'll have some focus from you know, the SEC and, and other regulatory bodies to figure out what curbs and what pushback can they put around shorts. I agree with you that in an efficient market, you need all order types, right? You, you have to be able to, to sort of look at the market both ways. And having you know, run a public company, when shorts get into your stock, you open your eyes and say, what are we, you know, is something, are we doing something wrong, right? Do we need to do something better? Are we getting a little bit behind? You know, it, it, it makes you think. And I think that's, there are good aspects to it as well. So I do hope they don't just knee jerk and, you know, and start to try and move that out of the system. I think that would be a mistake. Well, Carl, one of the things, I mean, you know, we, we've all seen short squeezes before. We've all seen short uh, selling come under scrutiny. Uh, it happens, seems like, every four or five years. What's different this time is the use of social media and the ability of these short sellers to really coordinate their actions. Do you expect there to be any 
regulatory overlay on perhaps the use of social media? How do you think that might play out? So, so I, I, look, I think you, you heard one of the um, one of the witnesses yesterday say that you know, in looking at their next sort of short selling campaign or, or other entities that they might be looking at going short against, they will employ sort of data scientists and data data experts mm-hmm. to take a look at the social media boards and, and see if there's a you know a, an By the way, I, I thought that was kind of funny too when they said they're going to employ data scientists. <laughs> I, I figured they put their teenagers on Reddit, right? I mean, no, just not, yeah, just, no, just read is, Wall Street bets. Not, no, they, they will employ more than teenagers that I can guarantee you, just given the amount of money that's at stake. But I, I agree. I mean, it, it's, it's getting through that piece. I think social media is here to stay. I think it's helpful. And, and by that, I mean, you know, of course, it's here to stay. But I look at it in terms of, you know, for retail trading and for others to use that as a, me- a mode of communication and a mode for sharing ideas. I think it's a great tool for, you know, for retail right, to learn and to use it as an education tool when you start, you know, sort of getting down the edge of manipulation or you start getting on that, then, then I look to regulators to say, there's a line, right? And, and this is where we think we can start drawing that line. But, but again, you know, the knee-jerk red line in the sand, it's not going to work. And Carl, if there is that red line to be drawn, is it not the SEC, maybe the CFTC, that does it, not uh, our good friends down in the halls of Congress? Uh, I, I don't. I don't believe that any rulemaking should come from the folks who were on that committee yesterday. Um, <laughs> I think you need to go to deep market experts. I think you saw very clearly the difference among the witnesses in terms of their expertise, and you only hope that certain individuals like that are involved in market structure and putting things together that can work. Because, in my view, it's always been a, a, a Jenga puzzle. Right, you can't just pull out one piece without knowing what else is going to fall. And that's, that's what we need when people look at this. So I do think it's, it's SEC. I, I believe Gary Gensler. I believe yeah. you know, Secretary Yellen. Right? You put the right people in the room with the right experience, and, and maybe we can move things forward in a productive way that doesn't box out retail. Hey, Carl, thank you so much. We appreciate that. Carl Rossner, he's a former E-Trade CEO. He's now the CEO of Left Terrace Group. Um, you know, really interesting, Matt. I mean, you just feel like there are rules in place. The SEC is there looking at these things. Well, you know. Yeah, well, there's also, you know, um, age old uh, rules of thumb. There's no such thing as a free lunch, right? And when AOC was grilling Vlad Tenev and saying, uh, you know, you've got it. These free products have to be as good as the ones people pay for. You ask yourself if anyone really believes that's the case. Yeah, and it, I think it's just exposed. Not, I guess, not surprisingly, that the you know the plumbing, if you will, of back office Wall Street is not widely understood. So maybe maybe a little bit of knowledge came to light yesterday, and maybe that's going to be helpful. The housing market continues to be a very pleasant surprise in a very difficult economic landscape here in the U.S. Just today, sales of previously owned U.S. homes unexpectedly rose to a three-month high in January. That I mean, it's pleasant if you already own one. Yeah, ex- absolutely. Not but if you want to buy one. Well, I think there's – you're right because <laughs> what we've seen, Matt, is particularly here in the metro New York area but in other urban areas, people kind of fleeing the city during the pandemic, uh, trying to get some more space, going to suburbia, and that has created this extraordinary demand in many, many markets around the country. And we want to talk – Real estate, Matt, we talked to Logan Mohachami. He is the housing data analyst and also lead analyst for the Housing Wire. Logan, thanks so much for joining us here. I mean, I know interest rates, mortgage rates are at or near you know, all-time lows despite a little move back in rates here. 
But are you surprised at how strong housing is in this country, given what's going on with the pandemic? Absolutely not. Uh, This has been my working thesis for many years, that years 2020 to 2024 would have the best housing demographics ever recorded in U.S. history. We have the biggest single uh, demographic buying patch, ages 27 to 33, are the biggest ever. They're roughly about 32.5 million. And mortgage rates have always been low. They've been low since 2008. But when you combine the biggest demographic patch with the lowest mortgage rates ever, and you're not working from an overheating housing cycle like we had in the previous expansion, home sales are going to rise. And this is exactly what's happening here. And I don't think it's so much about COVID as it's more about simple demographics here. I think a lot of people make it that people are fleeing the cities and they need bigger homes. This is just a continuation of a slow and steady cycle running into this massive demographic patch and mortgage rates are low. And the problem with this is home prices are growing too fast. The, the interesting thing, uh, the interesting thing, Logan, is that the left for years has been pushing for more density. And I've always thought, you know, if if uh, if I'm not wealthy, I don't want to be stuffed into a box next to a whole bunch of other people like I want to get out there. But the problem is, of course, the jobs are all in the city. Right. Is this going to uh, is this new working from home? Uh, era going to stick? Are people going to be continue to be able to continue to do that so that you don't have to be stuck in a box so you can get out there and have a backyard and a garage of your own? You know, I if even if the working from home thesis doesn't work out, I just generally think people would have moved. I mean, naturally, people buy bigger homes when they have families or bigger families. So this would have been the case anyway. The work from home model is like the most exciting thing in housing ever, because if you don't have to live near your work, then if you wanted to, you can move to areas that are cheaper. And we're not talking about state to state moving. You know, you could just move 20, 30 miles away from a city and things are more affordable. Uh, so that is a very exciting. I just think we have to wait until after the crisis is over and then when people are starting to, you know, go back to work and we'll, we'll see if this actually sticks. I just don't believe it's going to be as big as many people think it will be. But naturally, even if COVID didn't happen, people would have been moving anyway, because you don't live in apartments when you when you when you when you're starting to create a family. You have to buy something bigger or rent something bigger. So this is just a natural progress of running into a decade where we have a lot of people ages 30 to 39. So, Logan, let's talk about supply here. I mean, there's been a concern that the supply that we've seen come on the residential housing market over the last decade or so has been more on the higher end, the McMansions, if you will. We haven't seen enough supply for the first-time buyer, and that's been a problem. What's the status now? This is, this is a long-term issue. We've been building bigger and bigger homes for many decades, and the builders are trying to – uh, bring smaller homes into the mix. That's something that happened after 2014, after the big sales miss they had back then. So naturally, even if you bring smaller homes into the market, we're still talking about homes that are over 2,000 uh, square foot. So there is no more kind of a, a kind of a small 1,000 square foot single family home anymore. Everything is bigger here in America, and it's just as as long as mortgage rates stay low. 
people will be able to buy homes. You know, millions and millions of people buy homes every year. It's just that now we just have a, an extra push of uh, uh, demographics coming in with lower mortgage rates, and now you see what's happening. The prices are up uh, year over year, 14%. This is very unhealthy, and the only thing that changes It's too is, hot, right? It, yeah, the housing market yeah. is too hot, so it's you basically need mortgage rates to rise to calm that, to cool that down. We need a breather. Uh, days from sales from, or days on the market went, went from 43 days last year to 21 days. If this continues, we could have another 12, 13, 14% home price growth year. And that's not healthy because mortgage rates are abnormally low because of COVID. It won't stay here that long. So hopefully as rates rise, economy is getting better. It just cools the market down a little bit to get a breathing room. There's way too many uh, multiple bid offers right now, uh, generally in the market. And, and unlike the previous expansion where we didn't have the best demographics ever, we're running into a patch where just a lot of people need shelter. Logan, is Florida at risk of becoming overcrowded? It just seems like every day I read a story, hear a story, see a story about this mass migration, <laughs> companies relocating, it just seems like but they're all going to Palm Beach, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So talk to us about the Florida market. You know, F- Florida was always, you know, that's where baby boomers actually go to retire. Uh, now there's this, you know, if tech moves, I, I, I don't think that's too much of a story because, you know, if a few companies move, it, they don't really bring all their workers in. So I, 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 these stories are great for headlines. I just don't think it's going to be the case where it's just this massive, massive migration from younger people, uh, middle-aged people, and boomers. It's, it's just things are cheaper in Florida. And if you can work there and you want right. to raise your family, that's what's going to happen. And even okay. if COVID wasn't here, that will be the All case. right. <laughs> Logan, thanks so much for joining us. Logan Motashami, uh, housing. Appreciate it, Greg Jarrett. We really appreciate that update. You know, looking at the 10-year, Matt, again, 1.32%, pushing, pushing higher. It was, wasn't long ago when we were down in the very, very low ones. Let's get a sense of what that means for the pros in the fixed income market. And there's nobody better to chat with than R.J. Gallo, Senior Portfolio Manager, Head of the Municipal Bond Group at Federated Hermes. They've got a... He manages $11.9 billion out of a total firm-wide assets under management of $576 billion. They're located in beautiful Pittsburgh, PA. When I was on the sell side, Federated was a must-stop to talk to the smart people out there in Pittsburgh. RJ, again, we've got the 10-year at 1.32%, higher than we've seen in a while. What does that tell you? Well, it, it feels sort of good. Uh, as, a, as a firm, um, we've been short duration and expecting a steeper curve. And on the year, the 10-year is now up almost 40 bips. The 30-year is up almost 45. Two's 10s, two's 30s, up 40 to 45 basis points as well. So in a business like this where we're trying to position for what we anticipate happening when you're short duration and expecting a curve to steepen and you get it right, it's helped returns in a lot of our bond portfolios, like the Total Return Bond Fund. I'm a co-manager on that. A lot of our portfolios have positioned well for the trade so far. Of course, uh, we've got to keep looking forward from here. All right. Well, that's, uh, I mean, you deserve an Iron City for that, for sure. <laughs> Do you think that the yield curve will continue steepening? I mean, um, it, it does look like when that happens, it causes a little bit of havoc in the equity markets. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. I, I think... Looking forward, we remain short and still think the steepening has some more legs to go. The bottom line is when you get 
an entire changeover in control in Washington, D.C. that will lead to a fiscal expansion, meaning more debt and more spending with macroeconomic implications, i.e. faster growth. Uh, you should have inflation expectations rising. That's happened. You should have curves steepening. That's happened, too. We don't think we're done with this dynamic. I mean, obviously, we've had a, a, a pretty good size move. Um, the vaccination push, despite its hurdles and bumps in the road, because we know it hasn't been as smooth as many would have hoped, uh, is still leading towards more people getting vaccinated over time as months roll forward. And that will also support an economic normalization and pent-up demand for services, travel, hospitality, et cetera, are all wind at the back of the economy. So we're pretty bullish on the economy, which means that we think rates should still be heading somewhat higher. We had the 10-year before the change in the Georgia Senate seats, probably around one and a quarter by the end of the year. And then once Georgia flipped control to the Democrats with narrow margins, we felt the 10-year is probably 150, maybe with some upside beyond there. So we still have some room to go as we look forward into uh, the rest of 2021. I'm here, I'm here to tell you, by the way, <laughs> um, be happy about the vaccine situation that you've got because you're one of the world leaders in terms of R&D, in terms of developing the vaccine, in terms of acquiring the doses, and in terms of giving them out. I know that when you're there in the U.S., it doesn't feel great, but you're doing better than almost any other country in the world. You're up there with the U.K. and Israel. Here in Germany, you know, we basically haven't even started yet. So but I Jerry, tell you, this. The model, you're mo- saying that because I was, so we had a national sales conference recently. I was saying that exact thing to all of our salespeople around the country. Even though you see it in the media, this frustration and disappointment, we are vaccinating at a more rapid pace than much of the rest of the world. And... We're vaccinating at a much more rapid pace than the well-famous polio vaccine way back in the 50s. People oh, in- invoke that as being you know, the-, the gold standard. We're actually vaccinating more people now over the same time period than occurred in 1954. So it- this is a t- complicated process. I'm with you 110%. But yet in the media, and you know, when you talk to your parents who still can't get their shot, uh, yeah, there's a lot of frustration. <laughs> but-, but in big picture perspectives, I gr- agree with you 100%. <laughs> So, Mao, is it, what's what's the pushback been? Because usually the Germans are known as for efficiency so, in all things. Or is, is the government? Getting I, a lot I will of tell you what I what I have noticed. If you go on the Johns Hopkins website and look at who are the world leaders, um, you see Israel there. Yep. You see the United States there. You see the UK there. Um, and these are countries that had governments who think things like America first, right? These are countries um, who have governments who think, you know, protect the homeland at all costs. And because of, you know, by the time Donald Trump left office, the U.S. was vaccinating a million people a day. So whether you agree or disagree with his pol- policies, um, it doesn't matter. The point is he already had the number up to Joe Biden's goal, right? And and then here in Germany, you've got a more liberal, multilateral approach to things. They they didn't want to grab the vaccines and have them before the Italians. They didn't want to leave the French in their dust. You know, they wanted to bring everybody up at the same pace. So what they did is they decided to give it to this huge bureaucracy in Brussels and let them handle it. Oh boy. And then Brussels was like, we'll wait and see if we can get some on eBay later. You know? <laughs> All right. <laughs> R.J. Gallo, thank you so much for joining us there. R.J. Gallo, Senior Portfolio Manager at Federated Hermes. And Matt, that's interesting here because, again, the the feeling is, okay, it's going well, but it should be going a lot better. Like here in New Jersey, we've got these mega distribution centers set up all around the state, but they're just sitting there you know, somewhat vacant and just waiting for supply. But I guess the good news is uh, they are set up. We are ready to go. And once uh, you ha- the you ph- have- pharma companies uh- – 
according to Johns Hopkins, you have administered 57 million doses. You've uh, gotten yeah. 16 million people vaccinated. A conversation that you and I had the other day reminded me of something that I want to bring up with Tim O'Brien. He's a Bloomberg opinion columnist, and he wrote, Texas shows what comes from ignoring climate change. Um, clearly, uh, Tim, Texas has had something happen for which it was not prepared. Um, you know, Greg Jarrett's family comes from down in San Antonio. And uh, it's unlikely that they thought when they were building a house that they should insulate their pipes, right? <laughs> sort of like, as Greg mentioned the other day, if you're building something in Chicago, you don't need to use San Francisco earthquake codes, right? Because it's terribly unlikely that you're going to have an earthquake in Chicago. And yet, that's basically what happened in Texas. Well, actually, though, Texas had the same problem in 2011. Its entire grid froze. And um, uh, industry and analysts said you should winterize the grid. Uh, it's a straightforward uh, risk practice that will keep you in good stead. Uh, and at that point, Texas was beginning to diversify the energy sources it, uses, it used to power the grid. Uh, and it made sense to winterize all of it. There are wind turbines and natural gas turb powered turbines in northern climates such as Sweden, for example, that don't freeze up in the winter. Uh, and they didn't do it. And then lo and behold, 2021 rolls around and the grid freezes. The second piece of information is, uh, yeah, you wouldn't have to protect your home against earthquakes if earthquakes were a, were a rarity in your area. But the reality of climate change and what you're yeah, seeing yeah. now with me meteorology predictions is that it's likely Texas is going to have colder winters for some time now. Well, this is exactly why I love your column. You mentioned the 2011 freezing in Texas. Back in 2004, Dennis Quaid and Jake Gyllenhaal made a movie called The Day After Tomorrow. And it, <laughs> it's pretty awesome. I highly recommend it. Big budget popcorn flick. But the idea is global warming, as I knew it when, we were a when I was a kid, or climate change can actually cause these huge cooling phases that roll down over North America and other parts of, of the globe. And that's what we're seeing now, right? That is what we're seeing now. And I think we should, you know, it's, it's obviously as an issue, it's a political football. It's charged with a lot of ideological division. But people should step away from that and just look at the facts of the matter and be practical about how to deal with it. I think, uh, you know, the, the energy companies in, in Texas have had you know, long track records of, of lush profitability. I think reinforcing their grid by winterizing it is not a, a, a profit killer and it protects them in the long run, but they haven't done that. So, Tim, I guess, you know, it shouldn't be that much of a surprise to see some people in Texas come out and, and kind of point figures uh, at the, uh, you know, the eco energy, the more uh, efficient energy uh, sources as a, uh, as a source of the issue here. But it's your colleague, Matthew Winkler, was out with a fascinating mm -hmm. column today saying, hey, if you look at just job growth in Texas, it's coming from renewables. It's not coming from, you know, uh, you know fossil fuels. Which is one of the reasons Texas embraced it. And, and you know, this whole topic has had a lot of misinformation around it from, from both sides of the aisle. Um, you know, the Texas grid, they've actually done a good job of trying to diversify and, and, and make their sources of energy um, more diverse, uh, sources of power, I should say, more diverse um, uh, than, than other grids. And, uh, and it, it's a job-positive development. And, 
And again, it's useful when moments like this arise to look at the fact pattern around it rather than saying windmills are coming to clean out your town, which is how I think the right jumped on this when the incident first happened. Yeah, I love Winkler's column. He said, uh, points out that Tesla employed 900 people a decade ago. Now they employ 48,000. That's just at their own company, not, you know, at suppliers. And that there are 3,000. Tesla, Tesla moved, moved to Austin, by the way. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's that. That's kind of the point. And what I don't get is why doesn't Greg Abbott embrace it? You know, the governor of Texas was also one of the people kind of blaming the green energy um, industry, and they're going to supply him with the money that he needs to get reelected. If he well, indeed think, runs for re-election. I, I think he was freaked out about uh, taking responsibility here. You know, he pointed a lot of fingers at, at uh, ERCOT, which is the public agency that oversees the grid, uh, and saying that an investigation needed to occur because they let down Texas consumers. Well, who oversees ERCOT? The governor does and the Texas legislature does. And he then inside Texas said, you know, the problem with all this was natural gas deliveries. We, we couldn't get enough natural gas to keep powering the grid. But then he went on national television on Fox and said, it's wind. And I think he's playing politics. It's, he, he wants to avoid culpability for it because this could be a potential career killer. Ted Cruz learned that yesterday, right, when he flew off to Cancun. Um, Greg Abbott could learn that as well. There's going to be a lot of backlash from voters over this. So uh, I think he took the low road rather than the high road in offering uh, a, a public response to what happened. So, Tim, while we've got you on the line, you mentioned Ted Cruz. I mean, that Cancun situation, it seems like such a rookie public <laughs> relations blunder. What happened? You know, it's amazing. Like We saw this happening in, in, in the U.K., right, when, when they had the lockdown and, right. and members of Boris Johnson's government decided to take off on weekends for personal trips. And, uh, you know, it's just I think it's, it's complete lack of empathy and, and indiscretion, and, and he should be penalized for it. It's completely bonkers that, that, that he flies to Cancun from his state because his pipes are freezing while his constituents are boiling water to stay alive. Yeah, I think it's probably, a, if I can speculate a little bit, he probably had the trip planned and thought, you know, I've had this planned. But you're right. I mean, it didn't work well for Dominic Robb, who's the one who decided to (laughs) drive to Barnaby Castle. Um, And in fact, my favorite uh, to to, to sort of get away from the main topic, my favorite brewery is called BrewDog. Scottish brewery, but they have uh, well, you've a really big... gotten away from the topic. Haven't you? <laughs> well, no, they they actually <laughs> brewed a beer for Dominic Robb called Barnaby Castle after he went there. Oh, so so, uh, yeah. so it was funny. quite good. So, so there'll be a beer coming after Ted Cruz. It'll, exactly. it'll be a some, delight or something. Some yeah. Texas whiskey. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Tim, just real quickly again, while we have you, are you surprised that we haven't heard that much coming out of uh, Palm Beach? Uh, you know, I'm not surprised. I think I think Trump is laying low right now to let some of the fallout of, of the impeachment trial pass. I don't think that will last very long. He, he obviously didn't waste much time in going after Mitch McConnell after McConnell criticized him. Um, you know, we've got news that the, that the children aren't, at least in the near term, going to run for political office. Um, I think, you know, I think you're going to start to see him in coming weeks be more visible. Uh, the interesting thing will be, how much traction does he continue to maintain in, in coming months and years? 
Hey, Tim, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it, as always. Tim O'Brien, senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. You can read all of Tim's work and that of all of the Bloomberg Opinion columnists at uh, Bloomberg.com slash opinion or on the Bloomberg terminal by typing O-P-I-N, go. The good folks at Bloomberg Opinion, lots of fantastic work coming out every single day. It's a must-read. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.